Our Old Testament reading this morning is from Isaiah chapter 53. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity. And as one from whom others hide their faces, he was despised and we held him of no account. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases. Yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. This is the word of the Lord. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked them, What things? They replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded, astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who had said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Good morning. It's always very nice to be with you and everyone who's watching from at home or my parents are watching from California, so <laughs> forgive me as I do a shout out to mom and dad. Um, it is wonderful that we can gather together. There's something about the gathered church that is just really wonderful when we are exploring scriptures together as a gathered church. It's very different than doing it as individuals. Um, today we are going on a journey. 
Uh, it's a fairly long journey, and we're only going to go halfway because the fullness of the journey is going to happen next week. So half the journey this week, we will appropriately leave at a little bit of a cliffhanger. We're not going to resolve all the issues and answer all the questions. I'm going to leave that for next week. For today, we're just going to walk slowly. We're going to walk right alongside, um, kind of pretending we're there in real time with these other two people who are on the road. And we're going to listen in as different characters in this narrative have different experiences and different perspectives. So uh, this particular journey is going to be really full of storytelling, of changes in perspective, and of dramatic irony. So English majors among us, you might love this particular uh, Sunday exploration because we're looking at all of these great ways to tell a story and to really get us involved in the real life and the real lived experience of people at this time. So we're going to start right at the very beginning. And we're going to, the, this particular passage connects us to what happened prior. So we're connected temporally to what happened last week. So last week we read from Luke, uh, just earlier in the same chapter, where the women went to the tomb. There were angels there declaring that Jesus was gone. They run and they tell the disciples. So we have this connection because this starts now on the same day. Right, so we're back in the same time period as last week's passage. We're involving some of the same characters as well because these two were part of the disciples who were there, who have heard all that the women had to say, which is a good reminder. We tend to, when we say the disciples of Jesus, we tend to think of the inner crowd, right? Those 12 that followed him everywhere. But there were lots and lots of disciples. So when we read all through the Gospels, sometimes the disciples are 70 people that Jesus sends out. So the disciple crowd is quite large. And that disciple crowd is different than just the masses of people because the disciples have given something up for Jesus, right? So there's, there's skin in the game in the fact that they're following Jesus at the cost of doing other things that are probably more culturally appropriate or accepted, right? So there is something, there's like a, an actual personal involvement that the disciples have, and we have to remember that when we're looking at this particular story. So we're connected temporally. Um, in our story, in our journey, we're given a route. So uh, this version says we're on the road to Emmaus and that it is seven miles from Jerusalem. So most of you know I love geography. Um, but this is one of those historical geographers like fun puzzle piece because we don't actually know where Emmaus is. There are three cities that are in contention for Emmaus. Some of this is because in some of the Greek manuscripts, it's not seven miles, but 18 miles away. And then we have Eusebius, who was an early writer, mile markers for all these different places. And he gives us one particular site. He names this as Emmaus. And then we have another Emmaus that actually has a lot of, uh, a lot of details behind it for being the actual Emmaus in reference here, but it's three and a half miles away from Jerusalem. 
So that doesn't quite fit unless it's round trip. But we don't often get the round trip details. So we don't know which Emmaus it is. But we do know of the Roman road systems. And each of the three possible Emmauses that we have, they're all along the same Roman road. And we can walk portions of this road. So a Roman road, not necessarily that it was all paved, but it was very wide, wide enough for a chariot to pass through. And it has curbstones and then like a pounded down earthen portion of the road. So we don't know exactly which Emmaus, but it almost doesn't matter because we're just on a journey anyway. Um, in our passage today, we don't arrive anywhere except on the road, and we do know where that is. And so the road to Emmaus leaves Jerusalem, which is up on the spine of the hill country, and you head west down towards the Mediterranean Sea. So we're going down as we leave Jerusalem. And uh, this becomes important, especially next week. So I'll add that to a cliffhanger bit for next week. So we're walking downhill. Now, how early in the day did they leave? We don't know. They've heard of the women and the women's stories. So it's not first thing in the morning where they've left. Um, but maybe early morning, where are they? Journey? We don't know that either, right? So just somewhere along the road. Okay, and context for storytelling, it's always super important. So context for this, we have to remember because we're connected to what we celebrated last week. The context is Passover, which means everyone in the city of Jerusalem, everyone in this whole entire area, especially all throughout Judea, everyone is thinking of when God went head to head with Pharaoh and God won and he liberated his people. So the fact that God is one who liberates his people and pulls them out from under oppression. So that's what everyone is dwelling on, which makes for an interesting context because although we're going, okay, so the ancient context, the oppressive empire is Egypt. In this present context, the oppressive empire is Rome. So we have just spent an entire week in Jerusalem with people celebrating and excited for a person, a Messiah to come and liberate God's people out from under Rome. So it, it's made for a kind of a stressful, interesting, politically um, a hot topic of the day. These disciples have spent a week that has been a somewhat fantastic week. It started off with a bang, a huge procession coming into the city, dramatic exclamations that Jesus is that Messiah, fulfilling their dreams, like Rome is about to fall and we're so excited. And the week has been full of all of these really intense debates and teachings all throughout the city. Jesus has been in the temple. He's been up in Mary and Martha's house. So lots of movement, lots of teaching. It's like such a full week. Then at the end of the week, they wake up to a huge surprise. The one they were so excited about has been killed by Rome. The one that they've given years up of their life for is dead. And that's a little hard to figure out. And it's a little hard to wrap their minds around because 
their hope for everything, their hope for getting rid of Rome, all of that has been squashed. In addition to this Passover crazy week, crazy death bit, just recently, just earlier this morning for them, the body is now missing. And there's different explanations as to why the body is missing. So it's a bit confusing. And in this confusion and in this bewilderment, we step out onto the road to Emmaus with the disciples and we just see what's going to happen. So this is a really fun bit because it says in verse 15, while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them. So we are told that this is Jesus. They don't have the eyes to see that this is Jesus walking with them. And so he comes near, he went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing them. Now this almost sounds like a big invisible hand was just put right over their eyes and so that they were blinded. It's, it doesn't really quite capture what's going on in the verse. Uh, in the verse, it's more like their perception wasn't right. They just, they, they couldn't quite see. Now for this, we have to kind of rewind a little bit and say, this is mentioning eyes quite particularly. And eyes have a role to play in the Hebrew and the Greek Bibles. Um, body parts always tell us something about the experience of the theology that's being learned. So your guts are where all your emotion are held, right? We, we still do this a little bit, like if you kind of read your gut, what is your gut telling you? You know, it's kind of the instinct. Well, that's how it was in the Hebrew Bible. Your guts were the place, the seat of emotion. Your heart, where we place emotion now, your heart was the seat of the intellect, of how you're pondering and what, how you're dwelling on things. That's the, the heart. Your eyes are your perception and understanding the world. So it's like your world view and what is, how are you shaping your world view? Now this is really interesting when you know this because all through the Hebrew Bible, we have the phrase, they lifted up their eyes. And then usually when a character lifts up their eyes, they see something they had not seen before. There's like a, in this moment, there's a shift in the perspective of what's going on. We also have really interesting, the, the biblical writers like to give us little hints and clues and foreshadowing about characters. And they do that sometimes by describing their eyes. So their eyes were dim. This is said of Isaac right before Jacob goes and fools Isaac. Isaac doesn't know because his eyes are dim. Eli, it's the same, the priest. We know that things are kind of troubling Eli and his family because Eli's eyes have grown dim. It's a, not only is he old, but there's a, he's not seeing the things of God that he should be seeing anymore. So eyesight and perception is really interesting. Um, Deuteronomy, which is the best book in the Bible, Deuteronomy says that you should bind these words of mine. So God's instructions, you should bind them on your heart. So in the knowledge, like it should infiltrate your knowledge on your hand so that it's influencing the way that you're interacting with the world around you and between your eyes so that your perception of the world is shaped by God's instructions and God's words to his people. And on the gates to your house and on city gates, which also is very fun, but not for this moment. 
we could then also go into the Gospels because the Gospels use eyes and the biblical Gospel writers also will um, talk about the miracles that Jesus did and choose them quite specifically. And there's always a physical blindness and a physical healing which brings to correct spiritual insight about who Jesus is. And so usually those who are physically blind that Jesus heals have the perception to see and understand who Jesus is in to the surrounding people. So if we bring all of this together, we kind of go, there's a whole big weight of tradition about what happens when we talk about someone's eyes. And so here we see eyes, their perception of the events of the day is not correct. And because of that, they don't see what is plainly right in front of them. So we're going to move in this story, the link between this week and next week, one of the links is we're going to move from a hazy, false, blinded perception to clear insight, recognition, and understanding of the events. Today, we're just on the journey as we go there. There's something about this, if we pause, that um, I really love, actually, because I, I like this story, but for something else that happens later, I've always focused on this other later bit that I think is delightful. Um, and it touches my heart as an Old Testament scholar. But this week, this week I was struck by this, the fact that their eyes didn't see, that there was a perception that had gone awry. And I just was finally noticing that in this story, what we see is a very compassionate Jesus who fully understands his story, fully understands how he fits all of fully, you know, has just experienced this death and resurrection, and yet knows where these disciples are physically, knows that they don't get it, and then walks alongside them and walks them in the process of understanding. And I was so struck by this because um, for the sake of like uncomfortable vulnerability, if I were to say in real time, I had a very strange and very awkward Ash Wednesday. And Lent was a bit disappointing for me for different reasons. And I had somewhat set up in my head this dream, not really a dream, but there were puzzle pieces that I was like, okay, this Lent I'm going to figure out you know, and I set a goal for Lent, right? Isn't this why we're fasting? We're like, you know, so all of this stuff. So it also meant that Easter was slightly disappointing for me. I don't know if you're allowed to say that in church, but for me personally, Easter was a bit disappointing because we got to Easter, the end of Lent, and I was no clearer in this question that I had been posing to God all through Lent. So I don't know if anyone else is there with me. <laughs> in this experience of getting to a point where it's supposed to be joyful and wonderful. And I was like, ah, oh, I mean, yay, resurrection. But like, ah, oh, I still just don't know what's going on. And that is really frustrating. And where is God? And all of this week, I was going, oh, my perception is off. I do not clearly see. Maybe Jesus is walking right next to me going, it's okay, Cindy. <laughs> We're, I'm just going to walk with you until you get it. I was like, that's, that's 
that's really touching. So it was like a part of the story I had never really paid attention to, but I thought it was just really, really beautiful. When we continue, Luke tells us one of the people, his name is Cleopas. So we have a particular person's name that is mentioned, and in true Luke form, because Luke tells us in chapter one that he is all about finding the eyewitnesses. And so here is one of the, like, you can just read Luke, and he, like, names eyewitnesses throughout the whole gospel. And so here we get one of them. So it's a little bit of a go ask him. Like, I'm recording something, but go ask him. He is there. He is known. And you can ask him yourself if you would like. So Cleopas is there. And as we, we kind of enter, this is like the super dramatic irony of the story, which is really delightful. Jesus shows up, but they don't know it's the risen Jesus. And Cleopas, when he's asked, like, hey, what's going on? What are you talking about? He's like, dude, are you serious? Like, you must be the only pe person who has no idea what's going on. Here, let me tell you, right? So the irony is Cleopas thinks that this person knows nothing. This person happens to be what Cleopas himself is blind to. And Jesus, who's walking with them, is probably the only person in the scene who actually knows what's going on. But Cleopas is going to go ahead and offer his version of the events. So he goes on to talk about, one, how it is that the general population has been describing Jesus. So Jesus in general, like this is kind of broad knowledge, everyone happens to know this. Um, he seems to be a prophet and he is mighty in deeds and words before God and all the people, right? This is how we've all been perceiving him. He is also apparently quite dangerous because our leaders have just executed him. And now Cleopas is gonna go, so that's one perception, the general crowd's perception the perception of the leaders, and now Cleopas gets to his own perception, like they and the disciples, all these people who have skin in the game, who've been following Jesus around. We thought he was the one to redeem Israel. Darn it, right, it's what we get. Which for us, the reader, knowing what's going on, we should be going, wait a minute, at the end of Luke chapter one, Remember we had this um, Anna and Simeon story, and we have a song of Mary and a song of Zechariah. So we have all these great pairings right at the beginning of Luke. It is Zechariah and Zechariah's song that he claims so confidently, this child that is coming is going to be the redeemer of Israel. And now Luke is going, see, we're at the end of the gospel. They had hoped he was going to be the redeemer of Israel, but there's still a perception problem that is on the table. And then we get the third point, or maybe the fourth perspective is, and also women went to the tomb. There was nothing there. We don't know what to do with this information. Um, and this is when I'm like, hmm, I could insert a snide comment about people not believing the words of the women. Uh, that's almost too easy of a comment to toss in there. We could really, though, say resurrection is a weird thing. 
No one was expecting resurrection. Now we, drenched in this Christian worldview, are expecting resurrection, but for them, resurrection is not yet an expected element of the messianic kingdom. So they shouldn't have been expecting it. Not just yet, and they weren't, and so they're confused. So there's like their perspective has gotten all shaken. It's a little bit out of whack, and, and Jesus is going to be invited into doing something about that. Because from the disciples' perspective, the enemy has won. The enemy still has the fate of the people in their hands. And Jesus has to go, ah, nope, I, I took care of that. But it's going to take a little bit. So when we get down to verse 25, Jesus, from our perspective, this unknown stranger from their perspective, says to them, oh, how foolish you are. We're like, wow, that is harsh. Like that is not the way to keep a conversation going by insulting people like that. It's actually not as dramatic as it sounds. The foolish, it actually just means slow to see. Oh, you are someone who is slow to see. Like, do you not actually, did you, you didn't really come to the right conclusion. So not dumb, but obtuse in your, okay, let's go to the remedial class of how to understand what's going on. And then this is the part I have always loved the most. Um, as an Old Testament scholar, I just think this part is amazing. Because Jesus goes on and he says, was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And then starting with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted himself to them, basically. And I, as someone who just loves the drama of the Old Testament, I love this. And I'm like, you know, if there was a moment in time, if there was a singular sermon I could hear, I would love to hear how Jesus interpreted himself based on the scriptures. And this starting with Moses and the prophets is a way of going and all, basically all of scripture. Because Moses, reference to Moses, is the books of Moses, the Pentateuch. And then the prophets, that's in the way we've divided scripture. It's like Joshua through Malachi. Right, so like in all of scripture, how does this entire scriptural witness point to the fact that resurrection should be an element of the messianic kingdom that has already come about. Wouldn't you love to hear that sermon? And Luke like does this super tantalizingly brief mention. And I'm like, oh, Luke, if there was ever a moment, you know, and here is where I would like to say in the journey that we've been on, it would be really helpful, like we're on the road to Emmaus, but we've just gotten to a crossroad and it has a different trail marker and it goes off in a different direction. I'm gonna try really hard not to step onto that road. That road is the way that Christians read scripture. And when I say Christians read scripture, I'm gonna say Jesus is scripture, which is the Old Testament, right? We have come to a habit of creating lists that make Jesus up. So the 25 top Old Testament references that prove Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, once you know those, obviously Jesus was the Messiah. We don't understand why the Jews just couldn't figure it out, right? This kind of thing. We, we come up with these really nice lists and we say Jesus is so obviously 
whatever we're going to say, the son of God, part of the Trinity, the, like, you know, all of, all of these different things. But what that does is that strips the scriptures, the holy sacred scriptures of humanity, but it's fullness and brightness and depiction of God's story. So when we become so obsessed with only turning to look at the past, when it obviously points to Jesus, what we miss is all of the in-betweens that also It's, I would say, flimsy way of reading the Hebrew Bible. So, and just going to lead up to, like, I just think we, we need to be doing so much of a better job reading our Bibles. And we're going to come to this in just a, a little bit towards the end of the sermon. Um, but what Bible do you read, class? Highly kind of recommend. Are you reading the whole Bible or your own canon based on just proving the point you want it to prove? Right? Which is always a little bit of a cringe moment. Okay, so Jesus is explaining to everyone. And this also means like all the small characters. When we strip the Bible of the fullness of God's story, we strip the importance of small, even small unnamed people. So there's like one of my favorite characters was this small girl taken into slavery. We don't know her name, but she changed by like a couple sentences. She changed the entire course of the story, which led to Naaman being healed of his leprosy by Elisha, which then also Jesus in his ministry healed leprous people in the same place. Right? And so there's something about like she has a role to play in these events happening that Jesus himself used to prove to people who he was. And we can't be stripping the scriptures of these people who are in the whole entire storyline. And so Jesus is talking with the disciples and this is, I would love to go, like what is he pulling from? He's not going to pull just from Isaiah 53, which is a favorite passage for people to point to. It can't be just Isaiah 53. It's all of Isaiah, all of Jeremiah, all of Ezekiel. Oh, remember the glorious rebuilt temple and the healing of the wilderness and the dead? I mean, gorgeous. So I would have loved to have been there in this moment. But what we're seeing, we're getting a little glimpse in this little journey that we've taken on the road to Emmaus. is this really fantastic moment where these disciples are physically with Jesus and they don't yet quite understand. Their perception is off just a bit. And it's not necessarily that they're wrong because they see how important he is. They're able to say, we anticipated he would redeem Israel. It's just that their imagination wasn't big enough. It wasn't huge enough. They thought, this is what God's going to do. We thought Jesus fit this. It's like, oh, but he didn't because this is what God is doing. And Jesus fit that. It was just so much more of a bigger, more dynamic story and fulfillment and dream that God had that Jesus fulfilled. So we're only partway through the story. We're gonna stop with no resolution in this, which is maybe a little bit irritating, except that you can go home and read it, the fullness of this. 
Um, and next week, we'll kind of, we'll come to bigger conclusions. But in the meantime, I think there's a couple things, th three things that I'd like to say we could easily come to. One, Jesus walked with them even though their perception was wrong. And that is a beautiful amen moment. Two, their expectations blinded them. And I almost wonder sometimes, like, what is, what are, how are we reading scripture? The whole entire book? Not the little sliver given to us in the bulletin on Sunday. Not the Christianity we're reading about, but the scriptures of Christianity. How well do we know it? Because we're never going to know Jesus unless we know the fullness of scripture. So how well do we know that? And maybe can we ask Jesus to enlighten us a bit? And then three, this is a community story. It's not an individual story. It's a community story in that there were women who had a eureka moment earlier in the morning. There were disciples who are confused. They're going to have a eureka moment in just a little bit. And then we have disciples who are on the road to Emmaus. They're about to have a eureka moment. So there's people in the community that have these like dramatic encounters with Jesus that it shakes them out of their expectations and they see clearly, but they happen at different times. It's in the sharing of their story that they see the fullness of God and the fullness of God's story. And I almost wonder like for us, as we're starting these resurrection renewal kind of uh, like habits, we're trying to get into these new habits. We have to do it as a church community. It's not an individual sport because I am not going to see, understand, or come to conclusions about all the fullness of God on my own. I need to hear your story. I have to hear what happened to you because your Lent was maybe just a better Lent than mine. And I just probably need to be encouraged by hearing that. There's something about like part of what church is, is us gathering together and sharing stories together and encouraging each other because we have eureka moments at different moments in time. And that's the value of us coming together. And so in just a little bit, when we come forward to the table, come forward with your eyes wide open, not as a, this is a personal moment between me and God, but come with eyes that are looking around and going, I'm coming forward to the table to accept this understanding of the resurrection of Jesus, but I'm doing it with all of you. Like, you are different ages than me. You are different genders than me. You are different economic situations than me. We are diverse in who we are, and I am coming forward with you, and I'm sharing that together with you. And so may that change and alter our perspective of Jesus and who the Holy Spirit is and where the Holy Spirit is leading us. I invite you to pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you for being here. Thank you for your compassion. Thank you for being willing to uh, basically walk with us through our whole lives, slowly bringing us to fuller and fuller perception, accurate perception of who you are. Forgive our blind spots and open our eyes. And in the course of this week, may we join together and be encouraged by each other's stories because all of our stories are pointing to you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.